Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Australians are known for lots of things. We're easygoing. She'll be right. We love the underdog, as we love tearing down tall poppies. We champion the idea of a fair go. We've also been known as a pretty classless egalitarian society. My next guest on Open House is urging us onto a greater gratitude for all that we are and all that we have in what he says is the lucky culture. He does so as both one of us and as a migrant. I'm very pleased to acknowledge that 30 years ago this year, Nick Cater was my producer when I was the European correspondent for the Seven Television Network in London. His contact with a number of Aussies led him to migrate here with his family, both exhilarated and terrified in equal measure. He left behind a society, the UK, split by class, deeply divided, economically and politically, with limited opportunities and lots of bad weather. He arrived in 1989 to lots of sunshine and opportunities and has, for the last 24 years, gone on to hold numbers of significant editorial positions in the News Limited Empire. Nick has just had published an important book in lots of ways entitled The Lucky Culture, with a warning that we might no longer be as egalitarian and happy-go-lucky as we once were. He also examines what place God has in the land down under. Nick Cater, welcome to Open House. Delighted to be here, Lee. It's absolutely wonderful to see you, Nick. Great to see you again. Yeah. I want you to sketch for us the kind of place and life in which you grew up at Southampton, you put it this way, halfway between the oil refinery and the docks. It was a very much a lower middle class uh, sort of enclave. You know, people worked at the Fourlier oil refinery or they going to Southampton and working those kind of jobs. But my, my parents were teachers, so we were sort of like one of the rare posh kids there, if you like. But it was a, a training ground in many ways, I think, because you just learn to mix with people from very different backgrounds than yourself and to get along with them and basically to seek out the goodness and the decency in them. What were your aspirations, would you say? I always wanted to be an author, strangely enough, and it's taken a long time <laughs> to get done there. It. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be a journalist from a very early age. I used to write a newspaper. My first newspaper came out when I was aged 11, we called it Southern Soccer. I shamelessly plagiarised the evening echo with all the football results in, and I'd put it on a photo stat thing and uh, um, sell it for tuppence on a Monday morning. So I was always kind of into journalism, I suppose. Great from stuff. Age. How hard was it to break out of that world and into the world of journalism? It, oh, it, it is quite hard. And I, I had... Really, I sort of—I suppose I gave given up ambition of that. I'd become a bit socially aware. I'd read a lot of George Orwell and a magazine called New Society. I used to get, which came out and told us how to correct social ills. I also developed a, a faith in my teenage years. As a result of that, I spent a gap year working for the Birmingham City Mission. We'd try and uh, help the people we'd now call the vulnerable in our community. We didn't yeah. call them that then, but we'd go and do good works amongst them the unemployed or out on these dreadful dreadful concrete housing estates where people lived i thought terrible lives what happened with that faith well i went to i went to university i suppose mine was a very practical faith it was about working out your own salvation about helping people's lives of course it was about reward in heaven and so forth but for me it was very practical and i'm starting mixing with all the christians on campus and um they, they just didn't sort of get energised about this. And the final straw was, um, oh, my mates at the City Mission in Birmingham said, oh, you know, we need to get some shoes. You know, they always needed shoes because these down-and-out people, would they wear out the shoes and they get wet feet. So we'd send them shoes. And so I put an appeal up, you know, let's have some shoes. A spare pair of shoes everybody has, we'll send them up. 
I didn't get a single pair of shoes. Wow. I went berserk. I, w- I stood up at the meeting and I just yelled and said, you lot are just hopeless. Yeah. I might have even sworn at them. And after that, you know, I was sort of persona non grata. So I drifted away from religion a bit. But it's always there in the background. Yes. Yeah. So fast forward, you got a job at the BBC. Yeah. And then with the Seven Television Network mm. in London, where we made you an honorary Aussie. Yeah. I asked with some trepidation, what... Was it about the Aussies you encountered that you found different? How did they strike you? Be polite. They're just my kind of people. Very practical. <laughs> very practical. A bit hard at first, and they're very tough. You can't get away with anything half-baked. You have to deliver. Uh, I mean, my first boss there, of course, before you, was Paul Lynham, yeah. and he was a brilliant journalist, yes. you know, much, much missed. But oh, he was a tough tough-minded bastard when he wanted to be and so you had to perform you know you, they give you a, they give you a go getting in was the easy part but it was whether you lived up to expectations lots know. of can do which was very different from the british culture actually. yeah definitely i've so many examples in my mind of things that just shocked me and excited me we went to you were there we went to we went to cover strawberry uh, fields yep. the, the horse, the horse. Was racing in paris and of course we didn't have accreditation so <laughs> <laughs> we were there trying to get pity. We then couldn't get in the into the race course. And Alan Dent, the cameraman, he said, "Oh, come with me." We went up some fire escape, <laughs> ended up on the roof of this creaking roof of this grandstand, and we just about got shots at the end of the the race. And then somebody came up and said, "What are you doing up there?" You know, in French. And we're, we're from going, Australia. We're from Australia. You get, it. oh yeah, all right. <laughs> that was just it. It's not what's the obstacle, but how do you jump over it? Yeah. yeah. So you arrived down under, nineteen eighty nine. As you say, exhilarated and terrified. What did you find in your new homeland? I suppose the opportunity that I expected to find. I mean, I, I came without a job and ended up going to the advertiser through a mutual friend of ours, of course, Tom Krauss, mm. sent me over to see Piers Ackerman. And, and, um, in Adelaide? In Adelaide, yeah. And, and Piers gave me a job. You know, I was a journalist, but I was a TV journalist. I hadn't written. Uh, so I felt like a fish out of water. But he took me on and gave me a go. So, so all those things were right. It was tough, you know, very tough, particularly on my wife at the time, my first wife and and the two kids. You know, she didn't have that work environment, found the suburbs where we lived very, very bleak places because until you get to know people. And Australians are hard to get to know, I think. Your title, The Lucky Culture, of course, has echoes to Donald Horne's significant book, The Lucky Country, first published nearly 50 years ago. How does his Australia and the people of Australia that you have come to know, how do they differ? There's a great sort of historical quality to Horn's work because, of course, the, he was writing about the country in '64 when it was published. White Australia, you know, almost entirely white people living here, very conservative and very anti-intellectual. At that stage, about 1.7 percent of the population had degrees, and now it's 25 percent. And his continual cries: "We need an educated people. We need education." So he's sort of really frustrated. You know, the end of the talks about the Corwell and and the, and the and and the Menzies era these grey men you know I think uh, Corwell was 70 Menzies was almost 70 it was a very different Australia but beneath it all he draws this great hope out of the Australian character you know particularly the fair go you know that he had no idea you read the book there's no sort of idea we might get this huge sort of human rights industry springs up he says well the fair go does it we just know what it means we treat everybody according to that why would we need you know anything more complicated in his Australia privilege kind of fell out of the sky to Australia. Yeah. But you say 
our greatest renewable resource is its people. Yeah, that's which my is different. key. That's my key quarrel with Horn because he says that Australia is a lucky country and it's got these second-rate people who just happen to luck out with the country. That, I say that is completely wrong. I mean, Australia is not a lucky country at all. Why was it the Dutch sailed up and down the coast for about 150 years and looked at it and said, "Nah, nah, too hard." It was a hard place, and you had to make your own luck beautiful country lots of resources but i keep going back to that phrase in the national anthem you know we have golden soil but wealth for toil you've got to work at it yeah so we should be more grateful for what we are and what we have well, more proud of what we are really yeah. after world war Two, i think for very clear reasons people got very nervous about proclaiming the superiority of their country we'd seen that terrible terrible examples of that of course we got nervous about the idea of the super race that we might be a better race but what i say in this book is it's nothing at all to do with race it's to do with culture it's to do with the character of the people and we know that now because we're a multi-ethnic country and yet almost every migrant who comes here comes for the same experience and inherits this same attitude. And there's a lot to be grateful for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a magnificent country in so many ways, but principally there's opportunity. It is what you make of it. You have also found, though, this rise and rise of a class of people who are busy sneering Mm. at the average Australian about everything from their suburbs their housing to the way they speak. I think before we had this growth in higher education, nobody really felt superior to anybody else. I mean, you might feel better off, you might have a better job, you might live in a better suburb, but socially you didn't feel superior. You know, you this great habit we've got of riding in the front of the cab. The driver isn't isn't our subordinate. And uh, it was funny, only, only a few weeks ago, an American uh, who was over here said to me, he said, what is it about you guys? You, you thank the bus driver. And yes, we do. Yeah, <laughs> why not? But, but we do that yeah. for this reason. It doesn't matter what you do. If you earn your, your living honestly, then you deserve respect. And that's what we always abided by. But now increasingly, I'm, I'm nervous about this, particularly the people that have been to university who think that because they've been there, uh, they somehow see the world more clearly or know things better, that they have superior manners to everybody else and keep uh, expecting everybody to, to play along. And if they don't they get mocked it's sad because you would have hoped for better from education yeah you would you want a better education i mean i I sort of despair about the way education goes but it's another story you know it's not unfair to come out of university and think you're superior because that's what you're paying for now we've you know university used to be this lifelong journey of learning now it's something we go and buy it's a commodity how is this sneering kind of playing out day-to-day you hear it on the radio all the time not not your of radio course station not, I'm sure no. but, you know we know we know the radio so the abc yes. particularly where, where you say oh you know they go on about mcmansions that's a good example they're, they're mocking people's houses and then they start attacking them for being ecologically unfriendly and all this these are houses these are practical houses for practical people they've got large families they want a big house you know and why shouldn't they not everybody has to live in some you know converted workers cottage in paddington you know? as i kept reading what you observe about this new sneering kind of class, I kept thinking that it was primarily describing not necessarily university people, but people who inhabit the media. I've been more and more mm. thinking we have a problem in the place where you and I work. We do. There's without no being about too incestuous about it. No, there's absolutely no doubt about that because it's a profession. What sort of people go into that profession? Now almost exclusively people with degrees. I mean, not when you and I started. No. but So they've been through that higher education, increasingly the arts and humanities degrees. So they're not doing engineering or science. So you immediately get a very small cohort. And then increasingly, of course, people are living in almost enclaves you know if you live in in the inner city you you meet inner city types 
uh, you live out here where we are. And they're different people, you know, they're yeah. different people. They need to get out more. Oh, certainly, that's the basis of it. They need to get out more. They don't have to go very far, you know, just 10 kilometres will do. But the test is, could you go into the front bar of a pub anywhere in Australia, not knowing anybody, and determine that you're going to come out after a couple of hours with some good mates? And you can do that. You can do that in just about any pub in Australia. But I don't think a lot of my younger colleagues would know how to begin. They just feel like fish out of water. Media people spend a lot of time talking to themselves about themselves as well. Yeah, they end up thinking that that's what everybody thinks. It's interesting, this dumbfoundment is a good experiment. They'll say, well, everybody knows that. Everybody knows, as everybody knows. When everybody says that, then I start thinking, well, do they? Yeah, do they really? That's a good question. You know, um, because you think that, and probably the people you, you've been socialising think that, but we don't. <laughs> There's one classic line you quote from a guy who's called Ronnie the Fruit Seller, yeah. which I think is very instructive for people in the media, people in the Christian community, for all of us. Well, this was a guy I just heard him one morning on um, Ian McManara's show, on, which is a, a great show because it does get out. Yeah. He's a man who does get out. This guy rang in from uh, Mildura, I think it was, and he sells fruit. Macca says, there's, a, there's some great people out there, aren't there? And uh, Ronnie said, yeah, but you just don't hear their stories. That's right. I mean, we, we don't get out and talk to these people. There's this overwhelming decency that characterises Australian people, I think. There are bad people or there are people who sometimes behave badly, but the norm is that people are decent and they act decently to one another, and yet we're determined to go and find fault with them. So we have human rights commissions and goodness knows what else that go around looking for problems. And I actually struggle to find them. If you read their report, it's this endless tale of trying to find cases of racism that stand up. They're hard to do. Actually, people don't act like that. People, by and large, act very politely. And when they step out of line, they're brought back into line. As I said in the intro, you examine the place of God in Australia, which, based on many of our conversations three decades ago, hardly surprised me, actually. (laughs) While you don't embrace Christian faith, you seem to be concerned about how it's been treated over the last decade or two. Yeah, I, I was surprised when I met you actually all those years back because because you did have a Christian faith, and life. I was a journalist. <laughs> I'd never been to Australia, and I didn't imagine that there were any churches at all in Australia. Really? It just never seemed to be that kind of country. You know, yeah. there might be some shearing sheds and a few pubs, but, <laughs> but actually, when I started researching the book and looking at the historical role of religion, I realised why I thought that way because. Religion always had a sort of secondary role here. It was always part of Australia, but it wasn't central in the way that it was in America. And you're uneasy about the way the new atheists and this sneering class have beaten up on the Christian community. Yeah, they have. I I think this is quite ridiculous, really. This, You know, of course you can have faith or you can't. I mean, if you don't have faith, then... um that's your business but this sort of really active going around uh, seeing religion as some sort of threat to society that's new they're trying to exclude them from the public square you know so you're not allowed to even talk about it anymore it's like smoking you know you have to do it in a private you say that the hostility towards religion among modern progressive requires an explanation yeah because it's far more than a mere intellectual disagreement Mm. what's the explanation you have for this hostility having thought it through well i think it's because their values are challenged you know the progressive set of values which they'd like to think was dominant is challenged every time they meet somebody who has a person of faith and you get key figures like cardinal george pell who become lightning rods for their anger what are their values and what's their problem with values in the Christian community? They have a set of values that are built on inclusiveness and or rights and all this sort of thing, you see. So they'll look at, say, the gay marriage issue in terms of rights, unable to comprehend that other people might think of it another way. 
you know, we're going to have change in this area. It's got to be my negotiation. We're not going to be dictated to on this one. I've got my views. I'm sure you have, but I'm just one vote. That's the current issue. But if that one was settled, there'd be another one. You know, there's always some cause. Progressives always got to have a cause. It's not righting the wrong that matters. It's being seen to right the wrong. So when you've righted the wrong, if you if you ever do, you move on and, and you have to find another wrong to right. And this is about moral self-worth, whereas I think Christian people draw their moral self-worth from other things. Of course, you get Christian people who are self-righteous and so forth, but mostly, you know, they contain their righteousness within them. And I think it's a really valuable yeah. observation yeah. from the real world. I think so much of what passes for social improvement is, in fact, both people's moral worth. It's not so much that we want to solve climate change. We want to be seen to be the sort of people who solve climate change. You know, we conspicuously carry our Hessian bags and so forth. I've tried to pull back and say in the book, well, let's assume to some extent that people really do want to do good instead of just being seen to do good. But really, privately, I think so much of this behaviour is just driven by a desire to be seen to be one of the decent people, you know. Very interesting. I found the way that you finished the book compelling. You retreated to a small town in a pub in Queensland, yeah. Ravenswood. Why'd you go there and what'd well, you find? I, I, well, it was a very pretty pub I saw it on the net. It, it was built in 1904 and it's hardly changed since. You walk in it's like walking back a hundred years. I picked it because I thought, well, I, you know, I had to go somewhere, spend two weeks finishing it off and I could have gone to one of those resorts up and down the coast. I thought, no, I want to go somewhere where I might actually meet some different people. So I just turned up and Di, the landlady, said, I said, you got a room? She said, yes, yeah, we've got a room. She said, would you like a key? I thought, that's fantastic. I've never been to a pub where a key is an optional extra. Yes. It says something about the place. Yeah. And I'd work on the book all day and go down at night. It was There's a, quite a productive gold mine nearby, so the pub would often be filled with these guys just straight up from the gold mine in their in their overalls. I'd nervously start talking to them, and they'd say, what have you been doing? I'd say, well, actually, I've been writing a book. <laughs> expecting them to sort of pounce on me as some sort of strange creature but no they just take you as they find you and we start talking about the book and we talk about mining and you know the reason I did it Lee was because my wife said to me you're romanticising you know you never meet these people you know I thought well I don't so I went out really to test the theory that people are decent and you found (laughs) pragmatic personable and generous people great people great people yeah Nikita, I think it's a really important contribution to our culture, the lucky culture. It is always great to catch up. Thank you so much for joining us on Open House. We'll put the details up on our Open House community Facebook page. Nick, thanks so much. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.